I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For over 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store in Charlotte, North Carolina. On this podcast, we unlock the stories of people's lives through the stories of what they wore. These aren't conversations about fashion. These are conversations about people. Jane Pendry has had a legendary career in storied fashion houses before starting her own collection, Dovima. Jane visits our stores twice a year, and in honor of her upcoming visit, we wanted to re-release this fascinating episode. Jane Pendry, welcome. welcome to Charlotte for the millionth time. <laughs> <laughs> it's delightful to be here. Always, always, always. Oh, we love having you, and everybody just looks forward to having you come. Oh, I'm always so happy to come. I really am. Thank you. Your travel schedule to do these trunk shows are interesting because you really have insight into all of the stores in the, in the country. Well, you you were the first store. Capital was the first store where I ever did it in a store. Mostly, you did it I in was home? private homes, really? and then hotel suites, mm-hmm. and still on the whole, it's mostly like that. And if anything, when I was showing in LA, it was a friend's showroom, which a home furnishing showroom, so it right. was more like a home. Mm-hmm. So Capital was really the first, and now there's four stores, so still out of nine. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. how do you, and how do you find Southern clients? Southern. I love the South. <laughs> I absolutely have developed a huge passion <laughs> and love for the South, um, which was not a place... I didn't know the South before I started doing this, and that's what's been so fun about doing these trunk shows, is it's got me to parts of America that I would never have been to before. Mm-hmm. And I always try and treat every single season I do as a kind of adventure. Yeah. So your, if, your itinerary is never the same, or is it? I try to make it different each time yeah. in order, A, to keep me amused, right. plus I really want to you know go and discover somewhere new and different and you know that's what makes it fun yeah kind of thing and I think it makes it fun for everybody but also for myself yes. selfishly but I think that's important you do something that I do also you always go to a museum or go try to figure if I something not clothing <laughs> related yes but if I, I think possibly I really can yeah, yeah for me in market it's it's just so much visual stimulation that I, I just need a palate cleanser. I have to take a break and just look at churches or something. <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And it also seems a huge pity for me to go to somewhere that maybe I'm only going there once. Yeah. Maybe I'm never going back. Everywhere has got something special, interesting about it. I want to find out what that is and get there. Yeah. And if it means sort of somehow getting up at seven o'clock in the morning I'm not going to say six because that's a little (laughs) enthusiastic but you know I will go and I will see and I will find it and I I have seen such amazing beautiful wonderful things and where where are you from I am English (laughs) born in Japan really and I lived there until I was about two and a half three and then we moved back to England and so grew up in basically in London, between London and the countryside. But I went, I was lucky enough to be sent to the French Lycée in London, Mm. which is, thanks to that wine now, I'm married to a lovely Frenchman (laughs) and live in Paris. Exactly. (laughs) But I'm now getting to the point where I think I've probably spent as much time living in Paris as I did growing up in London. I'm reaching that point where it's almost... As much time 50, between 50. the two. Yeah, 50, 50. And tell me about style as a girl and, and style growing up I in think London. So 
England had been through that whole, you know, 60s style thing, which was kind of quite exciting, but I was a small child while that was going on. But my mother was fantastically stylish, very beautiful, an artist. Are you an only child? I, I, I have a very complicated family. I'm actually <laughs> the eldest of nine. What? But I'm also an only child. Right, you're so the only was, of that couple. I'm the only of that couple, <laughs> but I'm the eldest of nine. So wow. you need a whiteboard and two hours to but figure this out. But that's the first uh, union. So, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but I actually grew up really all through my young childhood with sisters. So okay. From who? Your mother? No, <laughs> my stepfather. You know, it's, yeah. it was a real 60s thing of, <laughs> you know, everybody getting together, divorcing. But where I have to say all my parents, be they biological or steps, were really fantastic, oh. were their attitude was that it it was not about the kids. It wasn't all this mess was nothing to do with them. And whoever it was would just scoop up this kind of tribe huh. of children and take them on holiday and that kind of thing. So we always grew up as a, a tribe. And this kind of carried That's on and so on and on. That's so interesting, yeah. So don't, people don't do that anymore. So it's not about us. Right. And it's true. It wasn't yeah, about us. Right. It's like, you know, they were doing whatever they were doing. Yeah. And so that was really lovely. So that's why huh. I'm an only, but I'm the eldest of nine. <laughs> Tell me what you wore. What? what like, um, so where, did, my, where were you in school? So I was at school in London at the Lycée Francais. Right. And the reason I went there is my biological father is a naturalized Canadian. Ah. And he ended up spending time in Canada. And he said that he wanted his daughter to be able to read both sides of the cereal packet. Because in Canada, it's in both yeah. languages. <laughs> so that was how the Lycée happened in London. Is he French-Canadian? No, no, he just, it was no, just no, the no. packet, yes. And the, <laughs> the thing that was funny is not one other person in my family speaks a word of French. That's so funny. I know. So and were I, there uniforms at the Lycée? No, there uh. weren't. I started off at one school, actually, before I went there, where we did have uniforms, but it wasn't long enough to make a difference. Right. So it was the French Lycée thing. Mm -hmm. What's nice about the Lycée is that it's a school which is a huge mixture in terms of people's backgrounds. Right. They're as kind of open, so you get f French kids who are the kids of waiters and the children of ambassadors, or their father's the president of a big, you know, multinational. And all this kind of mixed together. And that was always really sort of fantastic, and it was in the centre of London. But my first memories of fashion were not so much to do with school, were more to do with... There was this store in London called Bieber. Yes. And I remember being taken there as a small child. I mean, really small child. And with being your mom? With my mum, because I think she wore the clothes as well. Uh -huh. And her buying me this outfit, which to this day, I can remember exactly <laughs> well, the colour. Oh, my God, it was so fantastic. <laughs> it was a maxi dress, as they called it at the time. I think I must have been eight. I mean, seriously. Oh, my God. Long... It was a sort of Swedish blue with chrome kind of yellow dots. It was like a sort of mini oh, ikat thing in a cotton gauze with a tie at the neck. It was very wafty and floaty. Oh, and there's and colors on you. The colors were Gorgeous. fantastic. And I was also bought a floppy hat. Oh, my God. And I thought I was <laughs> the bee's knees. I mean, just <laughs> the coolest. What would you, would you wear clogs with that? Or what would you wear with that? Boots? 
I can't even remember what went on my feet. I was so about the hat and the dress. <laughs> just I mean, barefoot, it was just like, barefoot. Who cares? No, I think we had little leather sandals okay. actually, but that was oh. the best thing. And the, and then a little while after that, so I, I was a Bieber fan. It was yeah. like anything oh for Bieber. And then I got. They used to make these little t-shirt dresses with a sort of swoopy sleeve. You know that sort of great kind of you know flared look. Uh. In purple, oh it was God. all. It was so <laughs> exciting. I mean, it was just fantastic. And then Bieber moved from their sort of clothing store to this. They took over a department store in High Street, Kensington, which had been very old-fashioned, and they redid it top to toe. Yeah, and it was really the first lifestyle retailing that anybody had ever done anywhere ever. Wow! And it was a fantasy. And it was. And just all the people that worked there were incredible. All the Gorgeous. people were amazing looking, but you walked in and so Barbara Huliniki, who was the designer behind it, was very inspired by the sort of 30s Art Deco thing. And it was all sort of brown mirrors and this sort of 30s Deco thing. And she launched makeup and she yeah. launched the food halls downstairs. So dog food was in a dog, believe it or not. There was a huge model of a dog that had shelves in it and that was where the dog food was. Oh. The There was a vast can of Heinz baked beans which probably doesn't mean anything no, it to does. your English <laughs> with the uh, label cut out shelves and all the cans of Heinz baked beans I mean it was magical 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 wow she's still alive isn't she she is I yeah. believe she's in Miami uh, yes like I think that. you're right yes and yes. she's doing a hotel there yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's been a few years the lingerie was a circular bed covered in leopard print oh with knickers and bras sort of strewn <laughs> across the bread I mean Everything. It was coat, you know, those sort of coat play things. And that was, they just loaded dresses on it and did it like that. Boots, those fabulous lace-up suede boots uh. in every colour of the rainbow just lined up on the floor. I mean, you just wanted to sort of roll around in it all. And <laughs> I mean... Like a fever dream, it I sounds mean, it like. Was, it was so fantastic what tell me about your mom she was a Bieber girl but what what did she not just actually she was really beautiful yeah really really beautiful she was just very stylish actually so she did the Bieber thing she did a sort of neater 60s things uh -huh. I think there are often little jackets in my collection yeah. that are sort of channeling my mom which are sort of like those slightly sort of 60s high up under the armhole neat little jackets Things well, like I'm also that. thinking of that Biba dress, the T-shirt dress you were talking about with the flared sleeve. I'm thinking of your blouse. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> I think there are a lot of influences. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then you finished at the Lycée, and then what I did you do after I finished that? at the Lycée, and I actually got into college, but went to, went to Paris for a weekend with a boyfriend for a long weekend, mm -hmm. and stayed for two years which was kind of fun and the minute you landed you were like this no, is no 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 it was it was I didn't think I thought well maybe I'll stay on a bit because you know I had the rest of the summer I actually got a job very quickly as being a nanny uh -huh. for a French family for a French lady which actually was a complete nightmare she after two days 
leapt from the other end of the kitchen and stuck her tongue down my throat. And what? It was just, I know, it was Jane. really kind of shocking. And I ran out of her apartment, <laughs> leaving behind my coat, my handbag, Jane. my metro tickets, the whole thing. I mean, it was really like, oh my goodness, what just happened? Kind of thing. And this is before mobile telephones, before all of that. So I had to walk across Paris and I sat on the steps of a friend's apartment in floods of tears, Aww. waiting for him to come home. Because, because I could, I didn't have any money on me. I didn't have a metro ticket. I didn't have anything, 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 anything. Uh, so that was kind of quite funny. So, you know, that was an amusing story. But so he went round to get all that. So that was done and finished. But thankfully, within about 48 hours, I'd actually got a summer job at Women's Wear Daily. Yes. And so that was where really it all started after this rather unfortunate <laughs> two, three day interlude. Harassment. <laughs> Harassment kind of thing. Oh, my God. That I I love hearing your stories about Women's Wear Daily. Oh, and it was, I know. And and Patrick was McCarthy, your boss. He was. He recently died. I wanted to ask you about it. He's a really was a really lovely man. So the Women's Wear Daily offices were on Rue Cambon, opposite the back entrance of the Ritz, next to Chanel. Right under the eaves. Okay. It did not seem that swanky, <laughs> but it was a really important kind of newspaper. I was eighteen years old. I did not know the first thing about anything probably turned up in a Laura Ashley dress or something <laughs> you know which was a little passe exactly. at that point because I could speak French because I'd been sort mm. of recommended I got the job as the office assistant and I just started suddenly going to fashion shows and things that women's wear at the time used to do called advances so before the shows women's wear and w would go to all the houses to and there'd be a model dressed who we would either photograph in the salon or take out into the street so started doing this and it was a very sort of speedy education and because it was a newspaper everything was filed the following day and it was written up and so Patrick was a great journalist there were other really good journalists my job was to use the telex machine I'm really <laughs> aging myself here um, which looked like a cathedral organ and and sort of made a sort of clackety clack noise and I'd have to type in all of their stories and then we'd feed it through on tape because of course it cost a fortune for this to the more the longer you left it open it was like a very very expensive uh, phone call right and sort of feed it through and we'd do all that and it was I mean it was really really funny but we'd be filing until midnight uh-huh. Paris time was deadline deadline because that was 6 p.m. New York time and that's okay. when they closed the presses in New York So for a newspaper that was going to appear the following day, it was great. But the photographs could not appear in the following day's newspaper. So you could get the telex to send the story. But the photographs would appear the day after that because there were no yet fax machines or any way of transmitting an image. It was still rolls of film. And so how did you get the rolls of film? So the rolls of film had to go on the Concorde. No, are you kidding? Seriously. And so that was always really fun. (laughs) There were these red bags... That we'd get the rolls of film that were either developed, not de- developed with the little, you know, choices and that kind of thing, but often not even developed. I would run downstairs. I would go through the Ritz. There would be, we would grab one of the limousines <laughs> for the Ritz and it would take me to the airport, to the customs area, and I would give them the bag to put on Concord. In between time, there'd often been ca- calls from John Fairchild saying, 
on your way to the airport, can you go by El Olivier and buy me a few bottles of olive oil? <laughs> or I really need some shampoo from this French. No. <laughs> and they would go in, in the red bag. The red bag. Oh, my and God. put on the 11 a.m. Concord <laughs> for New York. I mean, those are the days. Kind of thing. And Patrick was really, really funny because he took all of this. He found the whole thing really amusing. So very quickly, I started going out at night and having a great time yeah. and you know, clubs, it was the days of the palace and the privilege and it was, you know, lots of friends and I would actually turn up for work basically still wearing the dress right. that I'd been wearing the night before with mascara and makeup down my face. <laughs> and you're 18 years old. I was 18, 19 yeah. years old. And Patrick would put me in a chair in front of his desk, make me a cup of coffee, <laughs> put his hand on his ha um, in his hands and go, now tell me Everything. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you see last night? What happened? <laughs> da, da, da. And then he'd say, go home, have a shower, and be back by one o'clock when New York wakes up. Uh, when New York wakes up. I love it. <laughs> yeah. oh, what an incredible first mentor to have. He was wonderful. And I very quickly decided that I wanted to write. I wanted uh -huh. to do like everybody else. So he said, okay, you're going to write parallel stories or you're just go you're going to find subjects to write stories about. And I'll edit them. And he did. And, you know, I'd get the copy back and big red <laughs> slashes through the thing. But, you know, that's you know, how it works. Yeah. And he, you know, taught me to write a caption, the whole thing. One of the things I love, the stories I love, is you're working on the in, what's in and what's out. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, that one was really good. Yes, so W had an in and out list, which appeared every year around Christmas, I think. Uh -huh. And the way we'd have to send a list from Paris of what we thought was in and out. And the way that we'd do that with everybody would be in what actually these tiny offices kind of with our feet up on the thing. We get in about five bottles of champagne, get <laughs> roaring drunk and just kind of decide what was in and out. And it could be as random as Barrette's Guerlain soap is in. <laughs> you know why? We don't know. But the famous time about that was we decided that Giorgio Armani was out. And Giorgio Armani oh, happened God. to be one of the most major advertisers the, right, for both 80s, WD, right? yes, yeah. no, 90s, <laughs> okay. for WWD and W. And the newspaper appeared and surprisingly <laughs> they pulled all of their advertising. That did not go um, over well. And the funny thing is, is that it's not like we put this in the newspaper. We put this on the list right. because we hadn't liked the shows. Right. The list went to New York. John Fairchild <laughs> loved people being naughty. Yeah. So he loved the idea of this. And so it appeared in the newspaper. <laughs> and of course, they pulled their advertising. Oh and God. so there then had to be a certain amount of on knees, cap in hand, <laughs> going back to Giorgio Armani going, we're so sorry, it was a typo kind of thing. I mean, I don't know quite how they explained it. We have a 19-year-old typist. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, oh, my God. But I, let's be honest, it was out. It was. It was really It out. was definitely really, really, really out. But the, and we also then made the front page of the New York Times, the Herald Tribune, we, the thing was written about as Newsweek. The office was besieged by other journalists because I don't think anything had ever quite happened like this before. Mm. Well, I mean, now with social media, you know, everybody's all over it in right. a nanosecond. Mm. 
So this was, you know, appeared in the magazine and Giorgio Armani pulls their advertising. This was front page news for <laughs> the New York story, Times. This yeah. was a story. <laughs> so we were besieged. And I, there was I going, no comment, no comment into the telephones and putting them down and locking the doors of the office. I mean, it was just insane. The whole thing. It was very funny. It was very funny. I love that. <laughs> and then after that. Where'd you go next? I moved back to England. I was going to move to New York to be a journalist, uh-huh. but my mum was sick, and so I decided I want to move back to England to be with her. And so I got a job at British Vogue, uh-huh. which was wonderful, completely different, yeah. because this was suddenly about the visual and the image and being a stylist and uh-huh. that. One of my favourites was this editor called Sheila Wetton, who looked like the Duchess of Devonshire, completely white hair, sparkly blue eyes, came to work every day. I mean, she must have been late 60s. Beautiful, really, really beautiful. Came to work every single day wearing a long tweed skirt, brown lace-up brogues, a twin set and pearls. I mean, perfection. Yeah. She said a swear word. (laughs) Every other word. I have never... (laughs) ever in my life met somebody with a fouler mouth than that woman. It was extraordinary. And I promise you, it was effing this. Did you see the effing coming out of this woman? I promise you, who was just extraordinary looking. I mean, so it was full of wonderful, fun characters. But I mean, still people that I'm friends with who are assistants with me. Lucinda Chambers was an assistant at the same time. She went on to be the fashion director of British Vogue. She's now launched this fantastic collection. You know, really fun people who I sort of kept in touch with. But incredibly good training. I mean, you know, Vogue is a very good finishing school. Yeah. So from Vogue, did you move straight from Vogue into working for houses? No, I didn't. Grace, as Grace Codrington, as far as I'm concerned, is actually one of the most incredible stylists who has ever been. She is. And it was that thing of watching Grace work and watching what Grace did and deciding that I was a good stylist, but I didn't care about it as much as she obviously did and so I projected myself of do I want to do this for the next 30 years and the answer was no there was that I loved it I was very good at it but I was never going to be a truly spectacular memorable shake the world stylist so maybe it was time to do something else and actually I moved over to work for Laura Ashley designing home furnishings if you can believe it (laughs) (laughs) so this is back in the day when Laura Ashley was really a wonderful brand oh yeah listen my entire room at my parents house is still full Laura Ashley Ashley. yeah yeah (laughs) so I was hired by Mrs Ashley in the time that it took to leave Vogue and start at Laura's she had had an accident and died and the company had gone public the way I originally got in was I was I met Nick Ashley, who had asked me to come and work as a PR on the fashion side. Because going to a journalist to be a PR felt like the natural thing to do. And I very cheekily said to Nick, I'd much rather do home furnished things because we can't really call it fashion, can we? (laughs) At the time, which was... And he said, no, I guess you're right. Had you always been into interiors? I Yes, because my mother, we, we constantly 
I lived in building sites my entire childhood, <laughs> which was always our house, which seemed to be in a constant state of redecoration, yeah. or it was another house or something like that. So, I'm married yes. to an architect, I understand. Yes, right. exactly. So it was that kind of thing. So I did the, the PRE thing for about nine months. Hated being I a thought PR. you were saying nine minutes. But no, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> nine months, but absolutely really hated it. Yes. Got headhunted to go and do it somewhere else and turned around to Nick and said, I love this company, but I hate being a PR. Please, can I do something else? Mm -hmm. And he said, give me 24 hours. Called me back 24 hours later. He said, okay, do you want to design the home furnishings? <laughs> or do you want to art direct the home furnishings catalog? And I said, give me 24 hours and I'll get back to you. And I so thought, what did you do, go home and freak out? And I like went out and freaked out <laughs> completely, uh, but then thought... Actually, I'd really love to start designing home furnishings. And did you have any, I mean, what hubris, did you have any idea what, how that worked? What was fantastic about Laura Ashley, and I think they've got a point, they hired people who understood the brand DNA. That was what they got. If they figured that you really got the brand, mm -hmm. they reckoned if you were asked to design a glass and make it Laura Ashley you would know what that piece looked like. Mm. And they actually kind of had a point. Yeah, they so did. I knew nothing about how a plate was made or how sheets were made or how, you know, I just didn't know anything about mm -hmm. that stuff. But I did know what it should look like if it was going to be made by Laura Ashley mm -hmm. and for Laura Ashley. So that was the fun thing. Yeah. And they were this company, they threw so much responsibility at incredibly young people. Mm and just go off and do it. And we were suddenly doing this whole big project called Laura Ashley Home and another one um, that I had really great fun with called Mother and Child that became a standalone concept. I think I was 26 or 27 when I was doing this. And you just kind of kept going. If you could handle it, they'd give you more responsibility. <laughs> but I ended up going to factories and I loved going to factories. That had never happened England? to me before. Yes, on the whole, everything was huh. made in England. I, that's when I started spending a lot of time in New York because the only thing that was a licensed product was the sheets hmm. made by a in company North called... Yes. Yeah, West Point Pepperell. Yes, yeah. J.P. Stevens. J.P. Stevens, yeah. So that was one of my most magical factory visits ever. Huh. We had to take... So by J.P. Stevens, we had to take a private plane to somewhere. I think it was probably Burlington. North Carolina. It was North, North Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> We landed, we drove through cotton field after cotton field after cotton field, get to this mill that sat in the cotton field where the cotton went in at one end, was made into thread, was then woven into towels. It was just for towels, this mm. thing. And then there was a conveyor belt that then went over to the other half of the mill that did the dyeing and the bleaching and then it went straight into trucks. Right. And watching this whole process. But the other thing that was really sweet was, you know, those boards with the little holes where they put, you know, welcome, blah, blah, blah. Right. I walked in and it said, welcome, Laura. They thought I was Laura. Oh, my gosh. Ashley. <laughs> oh, I love that. I know. And I couldn't. I would have cried my I, eyes I couldn't out. tell them otherwise. <laughs> and they'd embroidered towels for me with Laura written no. on them. Can you, did you save them? I need those. <laughs> I just, it was the most touching thing. So, oh. you know. This was oh. a lot of people who'd probably, you know, never left North Carolina and this kind of thing. And Laura Ashley was coming to visit them. That's oh, all they knew. My God. Well, so you helped, you kept it up. I totally kept it Good. up. You <laughs> Thank know. you. I had the English accents. It carried me through. It was fine. 
And I was so fascinated by this place. It was amazing. Well, anyway, it's so, gener- generations of people that had worked there. I know. Yeah. And it was, re- you know, really kind of incredible. And I used to go to Virginia to this mill to do the printing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was extraordinary. Okay. And so then from Laura Ashley. And so from Laura Ashley, sadly, after Mrs. Ashley died. Not you, but the actual Mrs. The Ashley. Actually, <laughs> Mrs. Ashley had died. And we, as a company, received all of this money to open all of these stores kind of took the eye off the ball Mm. and the DNA started frittering away and it was also a fashion thing because this was in the 90s where suddenly it was all about John Pawson Mm -hmm. minimalism (laughs) a little bit of beige a little bit of grey you know which was so not the Laura Ashley thing so it became tougher and we kept getting people coming in and telling us what we should do and it just got to a point where it was like no no more via an old friend of mine in Paris I was actually hired back in Paris to work for Yves Saint Laurent, who'd also just done one of their public offerings Mm -hmm. and they needed somebody to come in and manage their licenses for accessories. So I think why they hired me was I had had really good experience with Laura Ashley managing licenses. Right. But suddenly I was doing every single thing that was not a piece of clothing at Saint Laurent. And it was 45 licenses worldwide. Oh, my God. And what was it? It was like it was tie wonderful. clips? I mean, it was, no, like, it was, was everything. It? No, there was multiple. So it was handbags. It was shoes. It was eyewear. It was jewelry. It was hosiery. It was scarves, including it was bed linens. There was towels. But you had a license in Japan. You had a license in Europe. You had – we did have some quite weirdy – things playing cards <laughs> random lacquered bowls in japan um you know those were because what had happened was there'd been a point where nearly all the couture houses did this they licensing became a license to print money so they mm-hmm. signed 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 licenses and the licenses picked up the balls and ran with them and the person who did it the best was pierre Cardin. well yeah i mean Right. Best and worst. Exactly. Um, I mean, there was really like, you he... know, Pierre Cardin loup paper. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, it just went on. <laughs> so one of the things that I was there to do at Saint Laurent was to actually end some of these licenses or, yeah. and put much better control over the ones that we had. But where I was really fortunate was this was with Monsieur Saint Laurent and Monsieur Berger. And I spent two and a half years working around this man and things like the shoes for instance so we had our own shoe workshop which was actually under my office Uh where we could make a pair of shoes in 24 hours if needs be but most of the shoes actually came in from Italy Uh and were made by the license so we I worked on the shows whether it was haute couture whether it was the ready to wears Uh I also one of my things was to get people in the studio who worked with him working on the things that were the licenses as well we also had the cosmetics and trying to fold that in and stop that behaving like a completely separate company it was a very interesting job it was my job was both the business side of it I was in charge of the bottom line for all of this and but I also had a studio of designers who worked on nothing but licenses So it was managing the creative side as well as the business side, uh, uh, making sure all this was really, really, really Saint Laurent kind of thing. What an incredible 
yeah. experience. They were fun. And then from there? From there, uh, from there, went back to London for a short blip, um, <laughs> just because I was going through some personal stuff. And then again was headhunted, this time was to go back to Paris to work for Givenchy mm. with John Galliano at oh, wow. the time. And had you known him? Not really. I'd seen. I'd actually, at Vogue, gone to his final show, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, was either Royal College or St. Martin's. And I remember that there were fish thrown from the runway. <laughs> was his final college show or something. And a few landed in people's laps. But he'd gone on from there to be, you know, a total star and was then the first English designer hired by LVMH to come to Givenchy, yeah. you know, because LVMH had decided they wanted people who were going to make headlines. Mm. So John was the first. And then McQueen. And then McQueen afterwards. Mm. So I was hired to work with John. Um, I insisted on meeting John and that we were all on the same page and da 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 and Again, you were doing accessories for them? Sorry, Accessories, or you were doing, okay. exactly the same job. My job was to come in the, to do the this, licenses. The licenses, ah. but the difference was with Givenchy, we were buying back all the licenses. Right. Really bringing it all back in-house, back uh -huh. in-house, back in-house, back in-house. Um, but anyway, between the time that it took to hire me, John had moved to Dior. So my very <laughs> first day at Givenchy, <laughs> I was sat down in the president's office and he said... He went sort of bright red and said, I have something to tell you. And I thought, oh, God, am I fired already? I haven't even started. And he said, John's going to Dior. Do you want to go with him? And I'd been for interviews at Dior, and I went, no, thank you. I didn't, there was, yeah, you know, sometimes you get, a, you, you get a feeling yeah, just in the hallway. Mm -hmm. So it was not my vibe. And he went, um, okay, great. And he perked <laughs> up a lot. And he said, and I said, well, who's replacing him? He said, we don't know yet, but do you want to help us find him or her? I think it was only him yeah, at the right, stage. It was right, only yeah. a him issue. Um, so do you want, And I went, yeah, absolutely, that would be great. So I worked on one collection with John, which was his final collection, which was, I don't know, six weeks away. And we started this search for designers and ended up with Alexander McQueen. I think John did the show in October... Lee arrived a week later, and there was an haute couture collection to put together for the month of January. Oh, my God. And he'd never really been to Paris before. <laughs> he suddenly had a whole haute couture house at his disposal. There was that documentary that was done yeah. actually just recently. It's actually really wonderful. Um, they talk about that first season. They talk about that first season. Was the collection beautiful? I don't remember. It was. It didn't get great reviews yeah. because he was coming off doing these really extreme things. I think in the documentary you also see the, I can't remember what it was called, but it took place in the arches in the east uh -huh. end of London with barrels on fire and right, right, cars right, yes. on fire and that kind of thing. Yeah. So there were quite a lot of LVMH executives <laughs> sitting watching that show their faces were uh. a picture they'd <laughs> never quite this was a little beyond you know so lee comes to paris and does that first couture and what he's entranced with is the sort of the coutureness of couture right the and mind. they were wanting highland rape or whatever it was <laughs> do you know what i mean one of his shows yeah. where it was all a bit more extreme and a bumpster and a thing so he put that in but and so 
the show didn't get very good reviews. And uh, how long was he at Givenchy? Not many seasons. Oh, yeah. Was a he? while. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a while. I think about three years. Okay. I left before he did. I left because I met my husband ah. at Givenchy. Oh, really? And there was a very strict LVMH oh. rule in place that no thou shalt not date huh. anybody in the same company. They did, actually didn't even like it in the group, but definitely not in the company. Wow. And so did Olivier stay and you went? Yes, huh. exactly. And so, you know, we started going out together. There was also that thing of um, I wanted to have a baby. Yes. And he also, he was going to gave up on the whole idea. <laughs> and the doctor also said, if you keep doing this, you're not going to kind of thing. Just because the, it's, you know. It's not, no, it, it's it, the it, most unsupportive business for having a family. Not just that. It was just the hours that you work, yeah. you know. I mean, well, from, you do 40, it, when you're with the shows, you're doing two nights where you don't sleep right. before the show you know late 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 yeah, yeah. late it's on and, for and us, on the and cycle on. too is just you're you're in europe two weeks a month you're and or, and then you're back and i mean your yeah. body just can't yeah and i was just not actually <clears throat> physically able to cope with the whole thing yeah so i'm barely <laughs> <laughs> and so the doctor said well mm, okay if you're having trouble getting pregnant maybe this is why so yeah there we go um, and so, yes. That's hard, though, to take a step out of your career. It, it was a relief. wasn't that hard. <laughs> I actually was, um, no, it wasn't, it wasn't so much that it was a relief. It was very much feeling kind of decided about what I wanted to do. Yeah. And actually, I then spent the next six years consulting and working with small brands. And oh. actually, funnily enough, that was when... Um, I already knew Marie-Hélène, but I got to know her much better. I actually started a shoe brand um, with a designer called Michel Vivien. Yeah. You know, with that we started that together. Really? Uh, yeah, I didn't absolutely. Know that. Totally. Huh. And his, so the first six years, that was my major occupation, was, you know, getting Michel I going. I love those shoes. Yeah. So, you know, it was all you fun. You always love shoes? Oh, I love <laughs> shoes. Actually, my most... Other than that factory, which was the cotton factory, yeah. which was a factory moment. But the sh factories I love spending the most time way. in are shoe factories. And I just, <laughs> there's something about the complexity of the amount of pieces that go to yeah. making up a shoe that I just find amazing. Yes, so shoes, I love, 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 love shoes. <laughs> and I love spending time in shoe factories <laughs> and visiting factories and all of that. And Pierre Hardy's your friend. And Pierre Hardy is a friend. And Bruno Cazzoni. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. That's funny. Which is all kind of really fun. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I did that and then got headhunted again. And this was to go to New York to work for Ralph Lauren. Mm. And it just so happened that my husband, who was still working in fashion, but funnily enough, he had moved to work for Saint Laurent, but this was new regime right. with Tom Ford, Tom Ford and that kind of thing. So he never worked with Monsieur Saint Laurent. He worked with Tom Ford and that kind of thing. So it was kind of quite fun. He was getting a bit bored with the job that he was doing and he wanted to move on. They wanted to keep him in the company. And so they said, OK, you can move to New York and do this for Yves Saint Laurent. So we actually managed to move as a whole family mm to New York here. and Tom so we got visas for everybody mm. and off we went to New York and Tom went there and it was the most fantastic adventure. How long were y'all there? 
we were there for just just about two years, okay. which was really fantastic. Then what happened was they tried to replace Olivier, my husband, in Paris. It didn't work. So they told him he had to come back to Paris. <laughs> he then tried the Paris-New York commute, which is no. not happening. And so it kind of got to the point where it was marriage or job. <laughs> I went, marriage, yeah. I went back to Paris. I went back to Paris. There we go. And so it was in getting back to Paris that I kind of thought to myself, what to do now? Do I go back and do a sort of corporate type job? Who am I going to work for? Who do I want to work for? Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. And for some bizarre reason, having only done accessories, I mean, seriously, yeah. only, <laughs> only, only done accessories for any of these houses, I got this bee in my bonnet about clothing mm. and thought, I want to do a clothing brand. <laughs> and was it hard to start the brand? Terrifying. <laughs> it was utterly terrifying. It took me a good year and a half to two years to actually build up the guts to mm. actually get to the point where I was making a twirl. Mm. Then I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to do it. And funnily enough, I said, that first 12, I realized that having worked on handbags and shoes, which are so small spaces and mm -hmm. to the millimeter, I could actually make adjustments. And seeing the first garment made from that 12, so it's like, okay, maybe I can begin to do this. But I was still horrified. And <laughs> I'm not horrified, horrified isn't the word. I was still terrified. terrified and not convinced I could do it. So that very first collection, I actively discouraged people from coming to see it. I mean, actively. <laughs> Really? I know, it was ridiculous. It was uh, so pathetic. <laughs> Collection number two. I mean, you can and imagine. You and we, we, were, we were financing this ourselves. So, right. I mean, this was the most insane thing Did ever. Did you just show it in Paris to friends? I just showed it in Paris yeah. to friends to start with. Collection number two. Which I, it's collection number one, thank God, was really tiny. Otherwise, you know, we would have lost our house. You right. know? It was kind of one of those kinds of things. So collection number two, yes, Paris. And it was only going to be Paris. But I was also going to take it to London. Mm -hmm. So I found a place to take, take it to London. This wonderful friend from Chicago um, who lives between London, I mean, Paris and Chicago, mm -hmm. came in to see the collection and went, you've got to bring this to, to America. And I went, well... How she said, you're going to set up racks. You're going to show it in my front room, and you're going to and it's demi couture. It's fabulous. And I said, I can't call it couture. I've worked for a couture house. She went, it's America. You're going to call it couture. <laughs> I loved her. She was so great. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah. So that was my first thing, and then I thought, well, I'll take it to New York. Also. Having been worked in journalism, I had one or two contacts still, yeah. and they came to see the collection, and they said, "Actually, this is kind of fantastic," mm -hmm. and I got some press, and I got, and that was what kicked the whole thing off. But the fact, I think, it was also the fact that Olivier and I had worked a long time in the business; we had the logistics prepared yes. that picked up that interest that was generated. Right. It was really hard going for the first year and a half really hard to make ends meet yeah you know and all that kind of thing and then it clicked it clicked and people started thinking that oh this is interesting I quite like having something made for me and tailored for me and 
yes, I'll come back, and yes, well, I'm really say, using this. Well, I think it also it does take almost that second visit. Like you, it's not. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it. Um, people have to see the evidence of how much they wear it and that yes. they're such working clothes that I know. they um, they work so hard so that but that's <laughs> and then and then people cannot wait to see you again I they're know. like oh my god i've worn that thing yeah. into the ground yeah. i have to replace it yeah so that's the fault with the collection that on the <laughs> no on the whole it doesn't have huge hanger appeal it looks amazing it doesn't on. jump off you know, a rack at you. It requires somebody to sell it, to put it onto somebody. Mm-hmm. Once it on somebody, everybody goes, ooh, what is that? I'll have some of that. Yes, please, I want some. <laughs> but n- on the rack, not so much. Well, the other thing I, I love about your collection that, that nobody does this is that you have all sizes. Mm-hmm. And usually when you have a trunk show, everything's a sample size, negative two that's been fitted on a 15-year-old check model. (laughs) I mean, psychologically, that's hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to be a grown woman and try that on. And and people, you know, the person will say, well, in production, in your size, it'll be, you know, the sleeves will go to here. And But I don't I just, I always really appreciated that about your collection. And that you feel, the clothes feel, they make you feel so good. Thank you. I'm... They're really special. Okay, thank you. Why, why Davima? I, I know she was. Tell, <laughs> tell me, tell the story. About. Okay. Um, when I first, I was very leery about putting my name on a brand. I think it was that five years a consultant working with small brands. And there were one or two people who had sold parts of their brand to backers. And suddenly they didn't own their name anymore. Mm. And I thought that was the scariest thing that could possibly happen to anybody. So I knew I didn't want my name to go on it. And I started looking around for a brand. And then you start doing the internet searches for (laughs) what can I do as a dot com. And and it becomes really, (laughs) really impossible. And you're dreaming up names and they're all sounding silly. (laughs) So after a while, I just look up from my desk and I realize, as ever, there is the postcard of Davima with Elephants which was above my desk at WWD. It was above my desk at Vogue, which is a photograph by Richard Avedon, which is that beautiful woman standing with her arms up. And that dress. And that dress. That sash. Exactly. (laughs) Which, funnily enough, was an Yves Saint Laurent dress for Dior. Oh, was it? Yes. for Dior, I didn't know that. It's a Dior dress, but it was the collection that Yves did for Dior. Wow. Kind of thing. And I've always loved that photograph. It's always been on my little inspiration board. And I looked up and I suddenly thought, Davima, hey, that's kind of a good name. So you quickly do all the internet searches. <laughs> Nobody had it. And I could sort of do, and I decided I was going to do Davima Paris because I was based in Paris. That's where I wanted to find workrooms that were in Paris. You know, it's where I lived. So that was how uh, it started. Also, your label is one of the most beautiful labels. Oh, thank you. It's really Thank you, thank you, thank you. But every detail. We always ask this question. Do you have proms in, at the Lycée in, in London? Did you have a prom? Is, is that a totally American thing? Um, <laughs> I mean, I know it's totally it's, American. It's a, but, prom is a totally American but thing. But have y'all taken it? <laughs> I was wearing Laura Ashley. I was too. <laughs> I was, it wasn't, I'm not kidding. It was, it was more this kind of <laughs> sort of debut type thing okay. that was going on. Right, okay. Laura, Laura Ashley. Ashley. Me too, Jane. Oh, good. <laughs> the puffiest sleeves you've ever seen I in your know. life. So tell me, what did, what did it look like? This was, <laughs> yeah, it was a proper Laura Ashley dress with the... Floral? Pic- or f- Floral. Okay. Of course, floral. Do you know what flowers? 
<laughs> no. Okay. All I know, it was blue <laughs> with little white flowers on it. Oh. And it had some inset lace uh-huh. and round the wrist. It was... And know, what was the bodice like? It w- I had more of an open kind of neckline. I didn't do was the high... Was it polished cotton? Yes, it was a polished cotton. Yeah. Did you? Bo- would you have borrowed your mother's something? No, earrings? The, yes. I mean, there was... Oh, definitely that. I mean, we had a beautiful family necklace, uh-huh. bits of earrings. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, got to wear that. That was very exciting. That was, <laughs> that was much more exciting than the than dress. Than the dress. Actually. Much more exciting <laughs> than the jewellery. You, you have the best jewellery. Oh. Well, do you want to retire to my parents' house and go see my Laura Ashley bedroom? I would love to. <laughs> I would love to. I really, really, really would love to. Seriously. Thank you so much for coming. We love you. We love having thank you. Thank you. I love being here. I really do. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. What We Wore is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.